0: You're listening to the Mens Podcast, and this is the story of the Beast of Birkenshaw. back listeners. This is part three of the Beast of Birkinshaw series. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, I'd recommend you go back and listen to them first and join us back here when you're done. When last we spoke, Manuel had fired his barristers midway through his trial for the eight murders in Birkinshaw. Manuel decided that he would defend himself and take the stand to tell his side of the story. Reporters in the courtroom rushed as quietly as they could out of the courtroom to call in their news to their offices as the lawyers gathered their things to leave. Manuel's agents, Ferns and Doherty, were positioned closer to him, ostensibly to assist with his defense, but it soon became clear that he didn't want their help. The prosecution begins to question Goodall about the 14th of January and the arrest of Samuel Manuel. He stated as before that Samuel had claimed to own the camera and gloves. He also addressed Manuel's statement that he had received cash from Dandy McKay for showing him around the area he was going to rob. Goodall's testimony agrees with McNeil's. Manuel had been cautioned, but he confessed and brought them out to where Isabel Cook's body had been left. Manuel then got up to question the detective. He implied in his questioning that the... The police had already known the whereabouts of Isabel Cook's body when they took Manuel out to the Brickyard. He had Goodall compare the signatures on the confessions and implied that they were forged. He outright accused Goodall of forcing the confessions from him. Manuel takes all of the other police officers through the same testimony. They all deny each time that anything untoward had happened while he was in custody. None of them waver. The next day, Manuel asks for Watt and McNeil to be recalled to the witness stand because he was not happy with how they had been cross-examined by his previous defense counsel. He needed to explain some missing guns from the crime scenes. He was trying to lay the groundwork that he had come upon the crime scenes after the murder and removed the weapons somehow. But as the judge pointed out, that would involve someone failing to inform the police that such a thing had occurred. However, the judge allows it. Watt took the stand to be questioned by the man he believed had killed his family. Manuel questioned him about their 11-hour-long meeting. He put it to Watt that he tried to get him to implicate Charles Tallis in the murder of his family, that Watt had in fact planned the murder of his wife. He was badgered with questions about shooting his wife and daughter. Manuel questioned the two witnesses that supposedly put Watt on the road beside Loch Lomond and the ferry at Renfrew, Neither of these identifications proved solid, however. One was a mere glimpse, and the other was a sighting of the wrong type of car. Next up on the witness stand was Sergeant Mitchell, who had driven Watt home the day of the murder, and he stated that he thought Watt's reaction was too composed for someone who had recently been bereaved. He suggested to Watt that he not say anything until he saw a senior officer, and that Watt's response was, quote, Is it as bad as that? Do you think I did it? Mitchell and a colleague had rolled a car out of the drive of the hotel to see if it could be done without alerting those inside, and concluded it was possible. From Mitchell's evidence, he clearly still had suspicions about what. The prosecution treated him as a hostile witness, and questioned him closely about this test. Was the car the same make or model? No. Did he know the weight? The type of tires? No. The prosecution concluded that it wasn't a very scientific test after all. On redirect, Manuel attempts to salvage something, anything, from Mitchell's statement, and has him agree that nothing Mitchell found in Manuel's room was found to link him to the murders. McNeil then retakes the stand and is questioned by Manuel. He's asked, was he aware that when Watt was arrested, it had been stated that all suspects had been investigated and eliminated? He wasn't. McNeil stated he was acting under instructions to arrest Watt at the time, and did so. If that was the case, Manuel asked, then why did McNeil think he was connected with it? McNeil said that his answer wouldn't be helpful to Manuel, but when pushed, he gave it anyway. It was because of his previous knowledge of him. He had no doubt that they had the right person this time around. When he questioned retired Superintendent James Hendry, who had been in charge of the Neelands case, Manuel seemed to let slip some special knowledge he had about the crime scene, knowledge perhaps that only the killer would have known. He asked the superintendent about the ditch Anne had crossed while fleeing and says it's better described as a bulldozed trench. He asked why Anne had not simply run to the lights of a nearby farm. Hendry responds that he couldn't say what might have been going through her mind as she ran for her life. Hendry also rejects the earlier statement made by Manuel that he had told the press that they had eliminated all other suspects when they arrested Watt. On the 13th day of the trial, Manuel questions his mother. He brings her through the arrival of the police at their home and his arrest, and when she arrived at the station to see her son. Devastatingly for Manuel, when he asks her what he said to her when she arrived, she responded, quote, You asked me if I was all right, and if everyone else was all right, and that you didn't know how these things happened. What made you do these things? End quote. It sounded as if he had made a grave admission to something more serious than break-ins. Manuel attempted to recover and asked if she was sure that it had been Manuel that said that. In the end, she said she wasn't sure. The prosecution team then managed to get her to agree that he had in fact said that, and not only that, they got her to confirm that he appeared to be fully mentally competent when he was at home. The next witness was Manuel's father, Samuel. He was extremely hostile to the police and avidly assisted his son in painting a picture of the police force as thuggish and threatening towards Peter. He helps to cast Talus as the culprit in the Watt killings and the Platts break-in. He said that it was impossible for Peter to have killed the Smarts as he was a light sleeper and never heard him leave. He denied that Peter had ever uttered the statement about not knowing why he does these things. However, his credibility was seriously undermined when he failed to explain why he didn't tell the police when asked where he had gotten the gloves that turned out to be from the Houston's house. He dithered on the stand and said that he was excited and confused and couldn't quite remember where the gloves had come from when asked that morning, so he had just said that they were maybe his. Added to that, he denied that he knew the statement that Peter had made about quote, unsolved crimes and mysteries end quote, in the area referred to the murders and the missing cook girl, and insisted that he thought Peter had been talking about break-ins. With the press coverage as it was, and the fear palpable in the area, it was thought highly unlikely that this would be the case. Peter attempted to claw back some of the confused testimony his father had given by opening the door for Samuel to state that because of the shock of the situation, it was difficult to remember the details of what had occurred. Before the court is finished with him, the prosecution asks him about his son's mental state. He responds that there was nothing unusual or abnormal about his son's behavior in the two years prior to his arrest. Both his siblings agree there is nothing unusual or out of the ordinary about Peter's behavior in those two years. Teresa, who was a nurse and had at one point tried to have Peter hospitalized for mental illness, stated that his behavior was normal for him. Teresa, who was a nurse and had, at one point, tried to have Peter hospitalized for mental illness, stated that his behavior was normal for him. He was acting as she knew him to act, and there was nothing unusual about it. Robert McQuaid took the stand next. He was an acquaintance of the three Manuel men. He stated that he had met Manuel in the Royal Oak pub on the 31st of December, and he was asked by Manuel to keep watch while he sold a gun to another man. He noticed that the buyer for the gun was a middle-aged man wearing glasses and a black hat. He looked like pictures that had been printed of Smart. The prosecution asked if this was the case, that he had witnessed Smart buying a gun in a pub the day before he and his family turned up shot, why had McQuaid not gone to the police with this information? McQuaid responded that he didn't want to be done for keeping watch while the deal for the gun was going down. Besides, although there was a resemblance, he didn't connect the two at the time. The prosecution also asked if this was unusual, this gun deal. If McQuaid said it was unusual, he would be asked why he didn't report it, but if he had said it was usual, he would be admitting to criminality. McQuaid hedged his bets. It was, quote, quite usual and not unusual, end quote. He was asked directly if he thought it might have been important that an unknown man had acquired a gun the night of Hogmanay, given the news about the murders of the Smart family. Again, he said that he had wanted to stay out of trouble, and eventually stated that he didn't think it was that important, as he didn't think it had anything to do with the Smarts. The judge then asked when had he decided that the man he supposedly helped to purchase a gun looked like Peter Smart, and that this incident might be of great importance. McQuaid stated that he didn't realise it was of any importance until that day, which begs the question, how did he even end up testifying in the first place? His evidence was a mess. It probably did Manuel's case more harm than good. The final witness in the case was Manuel himself. He had sat through days of testimony and evidence, and his final chance was now here to clear his name himself. It would be to the gallows for him if he failed. He was ever confident and thought himself a highly intelligent master criminal. He convinced himself that he was better at lawyering than the lawyers themselves. He seemed to truly believe that when he got in the witness box and told his story, the jury would inevitably believe him and acquit. He was thoroughly eager to take the stand and show everyone what a good grasp he had of the facts of each case and how good his memory was for the details of the crimes, and to argue conclusively in his opinion that he had not committed these acts. He started with the Anne Neeland case. Here he stated that the police had found no evidence against him, and therefore he had not committed the crime. He had been questioned on the 12th of January by Inspector Hendry after Anne's body had been found. His house had been searched, and his clothes had been taken away for examination. None of this threw up a shred of evidence against him. Yes, he had appeared in work with some scratches on his face that could have been made around the time of the attack and murder. But he explained these away as the result of an argument. He had had words with the workmate who told the police about him and threatened him and that man had left the area and got another job. Sorted. He learned from a reporter that Henry thought he was the killer and... Then he agreed to have his picture published in the newspapers, so that if anyone could put him in the area, they would come forward and say so. No one came forward. He was questioned a few times more, and then he heard no more of the murder of Anne Nealance. He turned then to the Watts' murders. He needed to show that he had not burgled the Platts and shot their mattress with the gun that was used to kill the Watts, which he then threw into the Clyde. Enter Talus again as the scapegoat of his story. Talos had been offered money to break into a house in Burnside, but Manuel refused to help him. He could not have been present when Talos committed the crimes as he was escorting a woman home after a night in the pub. His father told him that Talus had been at the Manuel home the day before and tried to leave a package for him, and later turned up with two rings from the Martins' house. While he was out in town with Talus that evening, he saw in the papers that three people had been killed, and when he confronted Talus, Talus denied shooting the women. The next day, at 2am, the police came to his house. There had been a tip that he had a gun, and they searched his room, but found nothing. On the 20th, while looking for some packing tape in his house, he found a gun that looked as if it had been recently fired, wrapped up in an oily rag. He took the gun and threw it into the Clyde. When he tracked down Talus, Tallis admitted that he had left the gun there. According to Tallis, it was William Watt that had offered him money to break into the house. He and Mary Bowes had broken into the Martin house. When he met with Watt that morning, at half three or so, Watt handed him back the gun and told him to get rid of it. Watt knew that Tallis had been with Manuel and that Manuel had been questioned over the Anne Neelan's murder and told Talus to hide the gun at Manuel's house. Then he throws a curveball. He says that he came to doubt that Watt was involved at all in the murders, because Tallis was not reliable as a source of information, and that was when he wrote his first letter to Dowdle, whom he later told about the plan to break into the house on Burnside on the night of the Watt's murders. He said he told the lawyer, Dowdle, that Tallis and Watt had been working together, and that the plan was to frame Manuel for the murders by placing the gun in Manuel's house but they didn't know that he had dumped the gun. Later, he was told that Dowdle told the police that Manuel had committed the murder and could describe the interior of the Watt house by a policeman who had his back and urged him to tell the police about Tallis's involvement. When Watt and Manuel had met, Watt got drunk and Manuel had to take care of him. The next day, Manuel met Dowdle and told him that Watt had confessed to the murders while under the influence. He said if Manuel didn't help cover up for him, then he would be blamed for the whole thing. The story shifted and changed, and the jury was confused. I know how they feel. On the 14th day of the trial, Manuel took the stand again and dealt with another aspect of the story, the break-in of the Platts. He needed to break all the links in order to prove his innocence. Of the Razor, he said that it was simply not the Razor that had been stolen from the Platts, but had come from Tallis, again, who had got it from someone who worked for Phillips. He said he simply had not committed the murder of Isabel Clark. Finally, and most astoundingly, the smarts. He said he had actually known the smarts. He'd even helped when the house was being built to connect it to the gas supply. They saw each other a number of times and even went to the races together. He said that a few days before Christmas, 1957, Peter Smart approached Manuel and said that he wanted a gun because he was worried about prowlers. Manuel finally delivered it to Smart on Hogmanay at the Royal Oak. Smart paid Manuel for the gun, over 15 pounds in crisp new pound notes. They parted ways and Manuel went home. So he had been flush with cash, with money he had gotten from Smart, but it was through selling him the gun that he came into the money. He had indeed bought drink and cigarettes with Smart's money. But that wasn't the end of the story. Smart had left him a set of keys and had asked him to meet a Mr. Brown at the house on Friday morning as the family were going away. He would be leaving a bottle of whiskey out for the man. Manuel headed out on the town and after walking a girl home, he turned towards his own house, but then decided to go to the Smart's home instead and see if there was any whiskey about. When he let himself into the house, he found three bottles sitting on the sideboard. He poured himself a glass and then noticed the house was rather messy. Maybe the Smarts hadn't gone away after all. He started to wander around the house and began looking in the bedrooms. He put the light on and saw someone lying in Michael Smart's bed. He then went into the master bedroom and turned on the light in there. He saw that the family were all dead. He suddenly realized that he had been all over the house and had touched things, and the place would have been full of fingerprints. He found some gloves and put them on and began assiduously wiping down anything he had touched. When he went back into the bedroom, he found a gun in Mr. Smart's hand. He would now have the jury believe that this was a murder-suicide scenario. He took the gun away and pulled up the blankets on the bed to cover the couple. He stopped to feed the family cat before going about getting rid of the gun, which first he hid in a park near his house. When he left, the garage was open and the Smart's car was gone. It took him less than ten minutes to return home. Later that morning, he collected the gun, wiped it for prints, and dropped it into the Clyde. He waited to hear news of the deaths, but none came. He made an anonymous call to the police, but he still heard nothing. Finally, he heard the news on Monday morning. Quickly, he became aware that the police were looking at him for the murders. He said the police had bullied him into making the confessions that had been presented to court. He was questioned relentlessly. He said that the next morning, when he was taken to court, procedures were not followed. No charges were read out to him, and he was not allowed to arrange for a lawyer for himself. He was told to keep quiet. He agreed to write his first confession in return for seeing his parents, but he stated that he was very careful how he worded the document to attempt to satisfy the police, but not to admit to much of anything in it. The first statement did not satisfy the police, though, and he was made to write out another, which mentioned all four cases, Anne Neeland, the Watts, Isabel Cook, and the Smarts. He refused to sign this until he had seen his parents he refused to read out the statements until he got further assurances that his father would be released. The police told his parents that Manuel was deranged and that he didn't know what he was doing and assured them that he would get treatment. He reiterated that the only reason he had written out the confession was because he was forced to by the police to avoid getting his family involved in the trouble that he was in. Finally, the prosecution was able to ask questions of the witness. He was asked if he had really thought that there was some grand conspiracy to frame him for these murders. Manuel responded that he had told the truth about what happened to him, and the statements he had signed were false, as they implicated him in murders he had nothing to do with. He was asked if that was the case, that the police knew where Isabel Cook's body had been, why had they waited 48 hours and kept it secret? Manuel's response was that he couldn't speak to the intentions of the police, but he suspected they would have left her for as long as needed in order to get a conviction. The question of conspiracy was put to him again, and this time he answered that yes, he did believe there was a criminal conspiracy to frame him, which was pointed out by the judge would be tantamount to conspiracy to murder as the death penalty was on the table. To find Manuel not guilty would be saying the police conspired to murder him. When asked about the colleague that he had had a fight with over talking to the police, He said he'd had words with him, not because he'd told the police about the scratches on Manuel's face, but rather because he'd made a statement saying that he'd seen Manuel with a blood-stained pair of Wellington boots. Manuel had made a misstep here. The evidence regarding the bloody welly boots had not made it into court. But he had just brought it up, and the image of him trying to conceal bloody welly boots must have been vivid in the jury's minds. When questioned, he had an answer for every hole the prosecution poked in his stories. Queries to his tales were met by either a barefaced lie or a direct denial. He says that he possessed the Beretta gun for two years before the murder of the Smarts. Any story of him getting it from McKay in a pub in December was a lie. McKay must have been bribed to lie. By what? When asked why Smart had asked him to meet Mr. Brown at his home if he intended on committing suicide... The only answer Manuel could manage was that perhaps Smart wanted somebody to find the bodies. Finally, it was time for the closing addresses. The prosecution went first. He begins with the confessions. Even if the jury believed the police that the confessions were given freely and with knowledge that Manuel was entitled to legal advice, they would not on their own be enough to convict Manuel. The confessions must be corroborated by other evidence. He then took the jury through the four cases. In relation to Anne Neeland, Manuel had led the police to where they had recovered the angle iron that matched the wounds Anne had suffered. The jury first had to decide if Manuel had killed her, and then decide if he had intended to rob her. If he had, that would be capital murder. At the time, the law had changed such that murder was not automatically capital murder unless there was an extra element, such as robbery or resisting arrest. So the Watts murders and the Smart murders were automatically capital murder, whereas it had to be established and decided upon by the jury for the deaths of the two girls. He brought the jury through the evidence against Manuel and the Watts murders. The evidence gathered from the Platt's house, the electric razor, and the bullet, which linked to both the Watts murders, through the gun and Peter himself, through finding the razor in Manuel's house. Watt had no motive, despite being named the culprit by Manuel and he had a solid alibi. Peter Manuel had led the police to where Isabel Cook was buried. In relation to the Smarts, Manuel was in possession of money that was proved to have come from the Smart family home. He had given an excuse as to why he had it. It would be up to the jury to decide if this stood up in the end. There was evidence that he had purchased a Beretta gun, which was used in the murder shortly before the incident, and that he had disposed of the same gun after the fact. By the time Manuel got to his feet he had been giving evidence for many hours already and his energy was starting to lag. He made some good points at the start pointing out the relative weakness of the case against him in the murder of Anne Nealance, but he began to ramble in places and the judge had to remind him to cover particular matters. He again maintained that the confessions that the jury had heard were coerced and were therefore invalid. Charles Tallis was not to be trusted He had no motive for the murders of the Watts, but Watt did, and Watt had even been arrested. The judge then gave his summing up. He says to the jury that Manuel has, quote, presented his own case with a skill that is quite remarkable, end quote. Each case must be decided on the facts alone, beyond a reasonable doubt. All the charges must be corroborated. The confession or a single witness would not be enough. Each charge was to be considered in isolation. One guilty verdict did not mean that Manuel was to be found guilty on the rest, and vice versa. The judge addressed Manuel's mental state. He thought that the jury might well be wondering if Manuel was indeed sane. But no defense of insanity had been raised by Manuel, and therefore the issue of his mental faculties was not to be considered. In this case, it would be possible to make a finding of diminished responsibility, However, the judge went on to point out that no evidence of this was heard during the trial. No doctor gave evidence that Manuel suffered any kind of incapacity, and no friends or family gave testimony that would support such a view. He then turned to address the confessions. If they believed them, then they were important pieces of evidence to be considered with all the other evidence presented. If they do not believe them, however, then the jury are accepting that the police conspired to have Manuel hanged. The confessions would be, quote, the fruit of careful, deliberate, and indeed devilish conspiracy to provide a solution to unsolved crimes and to bring an innocent man on a charge of murder, end quote. He went through the various charges of murder and theft. He instructed the jury to find Manuel not guilty of the murder of Anne Neeland, as although he had confessed, there was no corroboration. He reminded the jury that Manuel had used a special defense in relation to the Martin burglary by stating that Charles Tallis and his partner Mary Bowes had committed that robbery. They had denied any involvement, however, and stated that they had an alibi of being at Mary Bowes' son's wedding. Tallis had said that Manuel had shown him the rings taken from the Martin house the night the Watts were killed. The judge reminded them of the details of the Watts' murders and stated that they had to decide who was telling the truth. Either the police were right and Manuel had committed the murders, or Watts had lied and play-acted grief after killing his own family. The judge indicated that he did not believe the sightings of Watt between Loch Lomond and Glasgow were reliable. The case against Manuel was strong. In relation to Isabel Cook, Manuel had made a written confession and the police said that he had led them to her body. One witness had given testimony that Manuel had intended on snatching someone's purse, so the jury might want to conclude that the murder occurred in the course of a robbery, but as there was little evidence of this, a verdict of simple murder might be more appropriate. Last came the murders and robbery of the Smarts. Manuel had admitted to being in the house and to disposing of the gun in the River Clyde. The money he had had came from the Smarts. He expressed doubt that Peter Manuel and Peter Smart had been friends, There was no doubt that the Smarts had been killed by the beretta that Manuel had possessed on Hogmanay and then later disposed of in the Clyde. Both the car and the gun were again found where Manuel said they would be. The jury thus instructed retired to deliberate. After two hours and twenty minutes, they returned. The four men read the verdicts. Peter Manuel was found guilty of the capital murder of the Watt and Smart families, and guilty of the non-capital murder of Isabel Cook. He was found not guilty of the murder of Anne Neelands, as instructed. He was also found guilty of the break-ins at the Platts and the Martins, and found guilty of stealing the Smart's car. A not-proved verdict was returned for the break-in at the Houstons. The judge placed the black tricorn hat on his head and sentenced Peter Manuel to death by hanging to occur on the 19th of June. Manuel rushed from the courtroom to the cells below and was then taken to what can only be described as the execution suite at Barlini. It was three cells combined which were adjacent to the execution chamber where the gallows were housed. He had a bed, a table, and chairs for him and the prison officers that kept constant watch over him lest he try and subvert justice himself. He was the most high-profile prisoner in Scotland at that time, and, come hell or high water, he was going to be fit to be hanged when the time came. A plot to smuggle poison to him, or to get poison to him for his own use, was foiled in the weeks he was held in Barlini. He had a radio, books, cards, and dominoes. He was only allowed out of the large cell to see visitors, which were closely vetted, or to attend religious services, his appeal, or the hospital. Manuel's parents visited him, as did a priest who Bridget Manuel had hoped would be able to take Peter's confession. He spent many hours with the priest before his execution, but he never sought absolution. In the days following his conviction, he was described as cheerful, despite his impending date with the gallows. He launched his appeal, which postponed the date somewhat, and perhaps gave him something to look forward to. He passed the time reading books from the prison library and smoking. He managed to get the ban on newspapers in the prison relaxed, and he had the Glasgow Herald delivered daily. He could keep an eye on what the press was saying about him that way. He regaled the prison officers with the fantasies from his early years of being in the U.S. Army and travelling extensively. All was going relatively well for a condemned man until the 20th of June. Manuel was lying on his cot when one of the guards noticed that he was frothing at the mouth and only semi-conscious. He was taken to the prison hospital and his stomach was pumped. The doctors first guessed that Manuel had swallowed soap and was faking a fit. His stomach contents were kept to be checked for poison. A meeting that he had with his agents about his appeal, which was to start soon, had to be cancelled as Manuel was in no fit state and was dazed from the illness. Tests would later reveal that there was no substance in his stomach which would explain his symptoms. The prison, fearing backlash in a very public case, released a statement downplaying his illness and stating that Manuel had quickly recovered. By that evening, Manuel had changed. Where he had previously been talkative and reported as cheerful, he now became withdrawn and refused to speak, even to his parents. He seemed physically all right, as he was able to sit up without assistance, according to the prison records, but he failed to go and see his parents. No one was quite sure whether this was all a front or if there was something genuinely wrong with him. A battery of tests were arranged through the prison hospital, Even if he were faking, the prison needed to ensure that they took every precaution to ascertain the nature of Manuel's condition. His only regular response for the next 18 days was to accept cigarettes when offered to him. He started to hold the cigarette strangely, though, with the lighted end cupped towards his palm, and the prison guards had to remove the butts from his hand to ensure that he didn't burn himself. He began ignoring telegrams, jerking about, and struck his head against the wall. This change in behavior couldn't have come at a worse time. It started on the Friday, and the next Tuesday, Manuel's appeal was due to be heard. He began to refuse to see his legal team. Three psychiatrists came to examine him on the Monday afternoon, one organized by his own defense team. He was found fit to attend the appeal, but it was noted by them that it might be unfortunate due to his appearance. They all concluded that he was having a, quote, hysterical reaction to his present situation, end quote. Manuel sat in the back room as his appeal began in the court in Edinburgh. A picture of him was snapped depicting a disheveled, tireless figure, which was in stark contrast to the well-turned-out fellow that people had seen during his trial. The next day he didn't respond when he was asked if he would like to attend the appeal, so he was kept in his cell. The appeal failed miserably. The judges didn't even take a moment to consider the arguments put forth by Manuel's defence. He would be hanged on the 11th of July. His behaviour continued to decline, but the expert psychiatrist stated that the symptoms were consciously developed, that is, he was more than likely faking it. The conjecture was that Manuel's idea of himself as a smart, attractive person had been shattered by the verdict and he was acting out because of his feelings of inadequacy that arose afterward. At first, his family were kept from visiting him, but when it became clear that his outbursts and silences were not likely to change, they were allowed in to see him. When confronted by his silence, his mother became enraged and yelled at him and slapped his face and pulled his hair. This got no reaction from him. As the date of his death drew nearer, Manuel began to make some disjointed improvements, but nothing that could be described as a recovery. The prison guards seemed to be on lookout for anything that could be interpreted as pointing towards malingering on Manuel's part. All of this was going on in a climate of reform, where many people felt that the death penalty should be abolished. Capital punishment was becoming less and less frequent, and even those sentenced to die were often granted a reprieve. This was not the case for Manuel, however. On the 8th of July, three days before he was to die, word came that there was not sufficient grounds to stop his execution. Manuel did not respond the next day there was a change in Manuel. he played cards with the prison guard that morning and when his family visited that evening he wrote the messages the notes seemed to say that Manuel had been hit over the head by a guard named sutherland he wanted another appeal he was assessed again by the prison medical team and appeared in front of the governor the day before he was due to be hanged his request for another appeal was denied He took visitors and played cards while the hangman arrived in the prison and began going about his work of calculating the drop and preparing the noose for the following morning. Manuel was recorded as being in good spirits by his guard, despite the failure of his last-ditch attempt to literally save his own neck. Unsurprisingly, Manuel didn't sleep that night. When morning came, he washed and dressed himself in a suit rather than in the prison clothing. Just before 8 a.m., Manuel expressed his thanks to the guards who had stood watch over him, and the governor of the prison arrived. A minute later, the hangman arrived, and he and his assistant set about their work. And then Peter Manuel was dead. He was buried quickly that morning in the prison grounds, without any ceremony or attendees, in an unmarked grave. Two weeks after Manuel's death, a coroner's court jury also found that he had been responsible for the murder of a taxi driver, Sidney Dunn, in Newcastle. He had been killed on the 8th of December, 1957, after picking up a man who said he was travelling to Edmund Byers. His car and then his body were found about two miles outside Edmund Byers, in the Moorland. The taxi had had its lights and windows broken, and Dunn was found about 140 yards away. He had been shot in the head, and his throat had been slashed. After his death, the papers cast Manuel as a monster. If he wasn't mad, like Justice Cameron had said in his instructions to the jury, then he had to be a cold-blooded killer. He was depicted as being almost inhuman. Not only had he no empathy, he could see in the dark. The randomness of his attacks, and the fact that many of Manuel's victims had been killed in their own homes, added to the horror. The lack of clear motive in many cases confounded the public and contributed to the idea that Manuel was pure evil. He had become the beast of Berkenshaw. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod. Join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group. Or you can send us your questions, comments, or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors on Patreon. Thank you, guys. Your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. We also have some really cool merch available now through our partners at Zazzle and Spreadshirt. So if you head on over to the website, you can check it out there. I want to take a moment to thank everyone in the podcasts we listen to and True Crime Podcast's Facebook page for being such great communities to be part of. You guys are the best. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.